You're tuned in to the Trademark Productions podcast, discussing all things web, tech, marketing, design, and business from sunny Detroit. Sound good? Let's get started. Another Trademark Production podcast, live from the beautiful city of Detroit on a beautiful summer, May, spring, single de seis. Spring. Technically. It's spring. It's technical. It's a technical spring. And we have a very technical podcast today because we have an innovator that's here in Detroit. Andrew Ropp of STEM.org is with us today. Andrew, thank you for playing Candy Crush while you're here live on the podcast (laughs) and stopping in today. Well, thanks for having me. I definitely appreciate it. Yeah, we, um, I actually ran into Andrew a couple weeks ago over here locally in Royal Oak at a function, and we got engaged in some conversation. I heard about all this cool stuff he's doing, and I'm like, you know what? You are definitely a, a great target to talk to to provide, um, I guess, more information and more encouragement to other entrepreneurs that are here within the city dwellings on uh, why you're doing exactly what you're doing. So Andrew is uh, the leader, the founder, the creator and the chief executive officer and the executive and the lead entrepreneur over at STEM.org that he launched in 2001 under the name Initiative Science. And your mission was to reinvent and improve STEM education, which STEM stands for? Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. Excellent. Um, But get more of an emphasis and reintroduce that into the school curriculum by creating better synergy between the subjects itself. So the company has grown from working with a mere 50 K to 12 students to over 100,000 students in that time? Yes. That's pretty um, huge, dude. 14 from, uh, years, you yeah, really rock it. 2001 to uh, 2013, uh, December 13th, we were able to uh, you know, reach uh, 100,000 students, and we were honored by the United States Senate for that. Now, I'm looking here at your rap sheet, and it's not definitely anything that would match up to Tom Hanks, but... Here you have 2015 Court Magazine Digital Science and Technology Award, 2014 Southfield Chamber of Congress, a company to watch, 2014 Federal Small Business Administration as an emerging leader. That's pretty hot right there. Uh, Mika, M-C-E-E-A, Michigan Career Education Employer Alliance, Employer of the Year for 2013. You're recognized by the U.S. Senate in 2013. And this is the last one I'm going to do because I'm getting tired, but the Detroit B2B Contractor Quality Excellence Award in 2013. You've been featured all over the media online, HuffPost, Detroit, CC Headliner, uh, Oakland, and Detroit Daily. So, hey, man, good work so far. And you're a mere 22 years old. It's amazing (laughs) that you've made it this far. You can just drink now and actually toast to your success. No, I'm just kidding. But thanks for coming on. Andrew, tell us a little bit about essentially why you wanted to make such a contribution to the STEM uh, educational movement here. Well, you know, I realized, you know, from sort of a – younger age in, in high school and college that, you know, just getting a science degree um, doesn't ultimately end up putting money in your pocket. Um, some of the smartest people that I know um, were broke. As a matter of fact, I had a college professor who was actually responsible for understanding some of the mechanisms of the fight, and, uh, fight or flight response. And so he's a rock star in the scientific community. And he actually came up to me at the end of class and he said to me, he goes, you know, um, can your mom get me a job with Detroit Public Schools? Jeez. And I was I was shocked. And I just read an article the other day that said that 25% of all college professors um, are on some form of public assistance. And so a lot of times people who go into STEM um, go the traditional route of becoming, you know, an academic professor. So, you know, in order for 
uh, me to responsibly promote STEM education. I wanted to sort of, uh, you know, disabuse people of the fact that, yep, you get a whole bunch of education and, and, you know, you live on easy street. I mean, I think that's just the beginning. So that was part of my inspiration for that. That's pretty motivating and pretty inspiring in regards to that. And you can definitely see that that relevance because you hear about it so frequently with um, not only just from a professor level for someone that does have a PhD that's educating and actually teaching us about the, uh, the, the amount of income they have versus debt and the reliance over a period of decades that they have to pay back the debt from that education. So it'd be, it's, it's very, very challenging, and it's, um, it's definitely a situation that needs to be fixed. So do you think part of that, too, is the absence of um, you know, business training within STEM? To not make that connection, obviously, like you said, he's a rock star, he's a brilliant academic, and academia probably isn't what it was once, uh, meaning you know you can't go in and get tenure and um, I wouldn't say easy streak, you still got to pay your dues, but do you think there's that, uh, that lack of uh, business training within STEM where you saw the real opportunity? Yeah, I think you know, um, part of it is the exorbitant expenses of higher education. You know, it's just really, really expensive. And the whole business model, um, you know. uh, Which it is a business model. Oh, absolutely. I call it the uh, institutions of higher earning, not to throw them under the bus. But, you know, ultimately it's very expensive. And, you know, there's typically in a lot of departments maybe one full-time professor. And that person gets, you know, great income, great benefits. But the majority of uh, those who teach uh, in college and university are adjuncts. And adjuncts get between twelve and fifteen hundred dollars per semester uh, per class. Um, so you you get these really really intelligent individuals who, you know, are waiting for that full time spot to open up, but they still have bills to pay, they have sure. student loans to pay off, and a family to take care of. And so you know, how do we get people to think outside of the box, and um, you know, ultimately take their love for STEM and um, bring it to a need, take their passion to a need. That's really really important now you were born and raised here in good old state of michigan yes i grew up in mexican town in southwest detroit Glorilay. uh yeah. cinco de mile yesterday i was at uh a great restaurant down there claro uh, <laughs> um so you know that that was a, that played a, a really big role in um me starting keeping it here and keeping it here locally in here in absolutely detroit. how are you seeing as far as in Detroit, especially relating to technology, that it has impacted you in the success of STEM. Um, what does the growth in the city say about STEM in specific? You know, there's been a lot of really exciting sort of, um, you know, investment in technology. I think that, you know, uh, the, uh, I guess the talks about putting uh, the rocket fiber in, uh, where we're getting that infrastructure in to get internet um, that's faster than, you know, Comcast and, and, and some of these other ones that are out there creating that um, that infrastructure um, attracts you know some of the top talent and um, Detroit is a is an affordable place to live it's a great place to live I mean we don't have to worry about a lot of the things that some of these other places have to worry about like water um, and other things so if you pay your bill right exactly <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know we have those things that are are attractive and I I, I think people are starting to see that. Um, you know, some of these uh, Detroit Venture Partners and some of these uh, other uh, entrepreneurs out there are investing more in these technology-based companies, and you're starting to see a lot more of that opportunity, a lot more um, over the last five years than probably over the last uh, several decades. Yeah, what was that journey like? Because if you started in 2001 and um, 
I, I don't know. Obviously, probably more in recent years, you see a lot about STEM. I, I don't know exactly what it was like in 2001 because, admittedly, I wasn't following it. Right. Um, but from 2001 to now, especially in, in metropolitan Detroit, you've seen major economic fallout, um, mayor scandals, new mayor. I mean, you've kind of you know ridden a lot of peaks and valleys. Those are fabricated. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was set up. Well, what, what was that like? Obviously, in, you know, what we were mentioning earlier in the last couple of years, there's been sort of the explosion of the tech scene, but... What was it like when you first started out? So, you know, we really focused mostly on hands-on science activities. It wasn't really STEM. It was more of just, you know, um, creating opportunities for science in the classroom. Um, over the, you know, maybe the last six to eight years, it's been more of, you know, STEM. And, and STEM is now, you know, really the acronym. It's probably the hottest thing in education um, right now. But um, in the early days, it was, you know, we were... If, you know, a, a science desert, if you will. Um, and um, for a period of time there, even the Detroit Science Center went out of business. Right. And so it was sort of a perfect storm in terms of what happened here in Detroit, which is what caused, you know, STEM.org to sort of fill some of that, uh, that void. Um, but we went from, you know, science and, and then schools were asking, hey, can you uh, tie this in with the math curriculum and social studies? We started tying, uh, you know, in different subjects. And uh, and then you know it's like wow we're we're doing STEM right now and you know we're working in other cities like you know Toledo and in different parts of Indiana and so um, we focused a lot on post-industrial cities and their reinvention mm -hmm. and how can we create a generation of STEM entrepreneurs and I think that we're um, you know beginning to see some of that momentum happen here in Detroit. How has the perception in Detroit locally? Um, bend towards your organization. I, I wanted to go a little bit more back because our podcast is a lot about the utilization of technology mm -hmm. here locally, um, but kind of looking at the community as a whole. So how have you seen that been as a positive for you or some negatives? And how have you found, um, I guess, opportunity within the city? Your, your, your business is physically located. We're in Southfield. You're in Southfield. Mm -hmm. So you are a Detroit business just like us, located in Royal Oak. Right. <laughs> well, and I, yeah. I guess compounding that, too, all the issues with Detroit Public Schools, an mm -hmm. emergency manager, which probably is a little more recent, but um, the schools themselves have had their own set of issues, um, Just period. a few. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, very different. It's heartbreaking because, you know, my mom taught for Detroit Public Schools for 37 years. And, you know, it, it's difficult to work with a district, um, you know, because of so much change. Um, you may get a lot of. I would momentum. imagine because of limited resources too, right. yep. and just all of that. Yeah, limited resources, and just the fact that you might get the ball rolling with one person, and then uh, they're on board with your project, and then you know the next person comes in, and it's almost like you have to start all over again. Got to right? resell them. Yep. But um, but you know we were very fortunate, and I just want to be on the record and say that I'm a pr big proponent of public education. I think it's extremely important. Um, but we did get our start in the charter schools. Um, you know, we, we started working with Cesar Chavez Academy in Werner on mm -hmm. Werner Highway. Mm -hmm. um, that was about a block away from where I grew up on Cabot Street. And um, I think if we didn't start working with charters, it might have been, I might not be sitting here today because it was very simple. You, you know, you kind of talk to one person, the principal, they say, yep, we want to do this program with our students. And so it was very easy. We were able to kind of remove a lot of the, you know, bureaucratic sort mm -hmm. of red tape. Uh, that it takes sometimes with working with the school. And they were very forward-thinking. They were saying, look, we want to differentiate our school to make it so unique that these kids are prepared uh, in science um, that we're 
providing a good product for the for the neighborhood and for the families who decide to send their children to our school. Now, through Detroit Public Schools and some of the programs associated with STEM, you had the opportunity to attend the second annual White House Science Fair. So you had students that met with Barack Obama as well. Tell us a little bit more about what that experience meant for STEM and the students and how that helped give exposure to the program. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I, my students had the opportunity to, to attend uh, the White House event. Um, I had a kind of a con- conflicting sort of situation there. Um, but but all Because you're a Republican? You, no, 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 I'm not. It's racial. Yeah. <laughs> We're kidding. It's not. Um, no, no. Just so you I know, this Barack. podcast you can you can fucking swear. We, it's, it's, we, we keep it. We're light. not governed by the FCC okay. or nothing like okay, that. It's, cool. can, we keep yeah. it light but professional. Yes, yeah. we try to keep it very um, fucking professional. <laughs> so you know, I guess uh, with that, you know, the students clearly they were super excited about it. Um, you know, anytime uh, students get you know recognition, sort of at the national level for doing things uh, for science fair, you know, it's just like. I mean, it gets outside of the classroom, and they're telling everybody pretty much, "Hey, look at what we did." Um, so that was a that was really unexpected. Um, I mean, I don't. I mean, can you kind of repeat your question? Maybe I, I don't know if I'm addressing it or not fully, but well, I mean, what experience did this meet for? How did that experience um, gave gave exposure to STEM, and then what did that result in? What type of reaction and interest did you have where did that come from and how did that help you grow and thrive within our beautiful city here sure so well for a long time it was not an issue like um at the political level uh we didn't get much support for the first probably eight years that we were around um you know recently you started donating right exactly (laughs) um no no uh, yeah, we have a full-time lobbyist in Lansing. Right. Uh, yeah. But by the way, all Sharpen listens to this yeah. podcast. So, what did you say? Um, but no, I think what happened was just you know there was a an overwhelming push from the tech industry to say, look, you know, we need qualified. They've talent. got vacancies, and you know what STEM does is you know we're further on back down the pipeline, meaning like right where the pipeline sort of feeds into higher education, we lose a whole generation of, of students. Um, at sixth grade, who say I'm not good in math and science. Um, so historically, investment has been at the junior, you know, sort of like junior and senior levels of high school. But by that time, you know, you've you've lost, you know, tens of thousands, millions. Yeah, of the largest amount of development, <clears throat> I guess, in the brain it happens at the earlier, younger years. So that helps really sure. establishes the baseline for them to, to grow off of. So we're changing that. Um, we're really. You know, we work in Jamaica and some of these other countries, and it's amazing that even in developing countries where people would kind of have this misconception about their educational system, um, you know, they spend uh, a higher percentage of their gross domestic product on education than we do here in the U.S. In Jamaica? In Jamaica, yes. Really? They value it tremendously, and they get it when it comes to early childhood development. And so one of the things that I'm pushing for is just introducing... because they have so many kids? Well, no, it's just more the fact that... They replicate a lot down there, don't they? Well, <laughs> replicate. <laughs> Duplicate. Um, I mean, they have a very large... They, they do. There's actually 775,000 school-age student, uh, children on the island of Jamaica. Wow, that's huge. That's a lot. That's and huge. they have, just to give you an example, the numbers, they have what they call ECIs, or Early Childhood Institutions, and there's 2,645 of those alone. Are those public... Funded or is that private funded? It's a combination. There are some government funded ones. Um, there are private ones, and then there's sort of a combination of both. And That's huge. I didn't realize that. There is not really. I mean, from my experience, there isn't a lot of separation between church and state. So you know, you do get, you say prayer before, you know, government 
meetings and things like that. And so in Jamaica, yes, churches are heavily involved in early childhood education. Um, and so they do get it in terms of understanding that, they, hey, we need to implement STEM strategies at the pre-kindergarten, kindergarten level. And hopefully we can change those students' trajectories so that they start thinking about tech careers uh, early on. How many years has this been going on in Jamaica? Um, this is our first year. Oh, okay. So, yeah. We so just, it sounds like you're going to have a great case study to build upon. Yes, we're thinking other, Is that part of, that. of a, a forward or a, a future game plan? for STEM.org as a whole to start to look at not necessarily just on the home front, but really to expand international markets. Absolutely. So we currently service, uh, you know, 25 cities in India, uh, 22 Arab nations, um, you know, Jamaica. Um, Developing countries are very, you know, important for me um, because, you know, clearly we uh, can provide them with not only the content, but also the training from, um, you know, a a governmental level, if you will, um, to get them on track for, um, sort of teaching best practices in STEM education. So recently the the U.S. Department of Labor listed basically the 10 most wanted types of employees, and eight of those were ones with degrees in STEM fields. So those are accounting, computer engineering, civil engineering, mechanical engineering, computer engineering, um, aside from a couple other ones. So from that employment being able to get a job, what are some larger implications of a, st- of a STEM education? What else can that, can that provide? So I think for the first time... Because that's huge. That's a yeah. huge guidance, especially if you're saying the government's saying there's a need. It seems there are going to be government dollars backing any type of job opportunity and growth in those sectors for a number of different reasons. I'll be nice. Not oil. Right. <laughs> well, you need engineering to you, extract you, oil. You right? do. Sure. Chemical engineering, right. mechanical engineering to Absolutely. extract it. Um, social engineering to guide the war vehicles through to get the oil out. Right. <laughs> um, you know, the, I think over sort of a uh, above and beyond just getting a STEM degree or having a STEM career, you know, we have the opportunity to really change our trajectory as a human species. You sure. Know, yeah. Um, we can we're we're really strongly i think you're at a great point and i I keep interjecting with you but i mean it's just regular dialogue here in a podcast um because we're 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 definitely at that point you know shane smith from vice had that roundtable discussion after uh, a recent uh, address by barack obama um i don't know if either of you have seen that or not but on vice and they had a handful of students that were going into college or leaving high school and going into college first couple of years of college. And that was probably the biggest complaint was the, the ability of where they were educated from, how they came out of it and were able to get into higher education, but the cost of doing those. And so much of a concern was being placed on how am I going to be able to live? How am I going to be able to live in the future? Mm-hmm. Am I going after what my heart's really all about in being educated and providing that to the world? Or is it being more based on the fact of how I pay off that debt faster mm-hmm. So should I go a different route and a different alternative in doing so? And so one of the things that he, he was talking about is upon leaving his office, because that's what all these presidents do, um, was to provide community college for a four-year education available for all these mm-hmm. students that are out there now, which I think is a great thing. I just don't know how anybody's going to pay for it. And that leads me kind of to my next question is, is, is in regards to the, a teacher being part of the success of STEM. And it's interesting you brought up as far as Jamaica, too. How do you educate and how do you select and how do you help or 
what's the word I'm working for? Like, uh, not a codependency because that's kind of negative. Like facilitate? Yeah, facilitate facilitate Mm -hmm. and enable in a positive Mm -hmm. way ongoing to to show that that teacher learns and and learns from their mistakes and learns how to to, support support Mm -hmm. the program. Nurture. Yeah, Mm -hmm. nurture ongoing. Yes, those are all the loving words. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, you know, really it's um, partially through policy. So, you know, by... um, implementing things like the next generation science standards where the teacher isn't the person in the front of the classroom but moreover somebody who's more of the facilitator who stands in the back of the classroom and has students work on projects and allows them to be the learner versus you know the person in the front of the room doing all the talking and also doing all the learning in many cases um, so um, you know policy is really important if um, you know we're supporting older educational practices that aren't working and that are archaic um, for political purposes because, you know, evolution and other things are kind of a problem and they're discussed in things like the Next Generation Science Standards, you know, then clearly, um, you know, that can be affected. But, um, you know, helping teachers uh, really sort of have ongoing training. Um, We do, you know, they're required to participate in professional development and also, um, staving off their own misconception about what STEM is. So a lot of elementary school teachers are afraid of STEM. They went into elementary education because they're not good in math and science. So, you know, how do we take content like fashion engineering and do things that are really, really easy for them to sort of implement in the classroom and say, hey, this is what STEM education is. Um, It doesn't stand for, you know, it doesn't mean stem cell research because we actually have teachers that don't even know what the acronym STEM stands for. Sure. Um, and, And a lot of parents and students also don't either. So, it's a literacy effort, it's a policy effort, and it's a combination of, of many different factors um, that can, you know, begin the process of moving everyone forward. One question on that. Obviously, you have, uh, at a policy level, you have the, the sort of government route, the traditional channels. Where have you seen success in trying to get that grassroots support to the teacher or to the parents or even, you know, the students of a certain age, obviously? Um, you guys have a pretty robust social following. Has that been effective to get the word out? Um, what, what other channels have you seen? For grassroots versus obviously going to policymakers and trying to, you know, fundamentally change things. Sure. Um, you know, really it was working directly with students in the community. Um, we are, you know, really not as much of a direct student impact programming provider as we once, you know, were. We used to impact about 30,000 students uh, on an annual basis. Um, but what we realized is we got a bunch of teachers together and parents and we said, hey, you know, what do kids actually want? And then brought the kids into the dialogue and said, okay, what do you guys want to learn in the classroom? And so we, would, we uh, surveyed 1,700 students, and we, um, we found out they like things like zombies and video games. Clearly, these are, it doesn't take a, a research you know, survey to do this. But you know, creating um, sort of opportunity for students where we're engaging them in content that they actually want, um, aligning it to things like the Common Core Next Generation Science Standards, and then providing it to the teachers for free or at a very, very low cost. And then them being able to go back to their classrooms and begin to implement this content in the classroom where they feel comfortable and where the kids are actually engaged. And so we've been able to sort of do that on a national level um, and even on an international level. As a matter of fact, we're going to Jordan uh, in August and we're going to be training um, the King Hussein Foundation and uh, the Jubilee Center for Excellence in Education in best practices on how they can do something very similar in that region. I wouldn't wear that coat. It's going to be warm. I know. (laughs) Really warm. August and Jordan? No. Nah. (laughs) That's great, though. Um, What kind of interest, I want to go back to interest and support here in Detroit. Um, 
you know, you've been working with Detroit Public Schools. I guess I'm, I'm more interested in an aspect of how can we help to grow and get out of the muck because it is going to be a long-term, decade-long plan in a lot of ways. How are you participating in that conversation here in the city and the surrounding counties sure. to reinforce that? Well, you know, really uh, last year we found out that the state had allocated um, $12,500 per prosperity region for STEM education. What's a prosperity region? Um, the state is broken up into 10 regions. Um, that was uh, sort of a, a Lansing initiative. And so uh, Prosperity Region 10 is Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb County. So they get 12 Gs And 12,000, yeah, just to, to <laughs> That's split. a lot. So literally that is less than 0.001 cents per school-age child in STEM. And, you know, we thought that was really one of the most ludicrous things. And then, you know, wanting to follow us around with the video crew saying, hey, look at all the good things we're doing in STEM education for the state. Um, they're not putting any financial resources behind it. Um, and from a, you know, from a policy level, too, um, they're not making policy decisions where education is being valued, you know. And so, you know, we are involved in those. I'm actually going to Lansing uh, on, the, on May 19th. Um, we're going to talk more about ways that we can, you know, improve that experience and, you know, ultimately, you know, find ways to invest more into uh, education. And, and one of the things that I proposed was something very simple. Look, you know, other states have, you know, very, very excellent STEM initiatives like, you know, Washington STEM, um, Georgia STEM. And all we were asking is, is saying, look, you know, let us be your representative. Let us reach out to these corporations like GM, uh, Ford, all these other places, and let us create a sustainable fund so that we can, in fact, um, create these public-private partnerships uh, to uh, improve STEM education in our state. Um, I've seen it and done it in other states, and there's no reason why, you know, Michigan shouldn't be one of the top three or five states in STEM education uh, in the U.S., but I can honestly say we're probably in the bottom five because we're not reaching out to uh, the, you know, private sector to say, hey, you know, you have a vested interest in this. You need highly skilled STEM uh, workers, and uh, and we have, a you know, a plan to, to do that. So, you know, these dialogue, this dialogue is uh, early, uh, you know, early in the making here. But um, I think that you'll see a, a dramatic change over the next, uh, you know, 12 to 36 months in, in reaching out to the private sector and, and, and beginning, uh, beginning that process. Who's your competition? Wow. Um, the DIB? Well, you, the uh, International Bachelorette Program, um, you know, they're a different sort of accreditation or certification. Um, I guess is it, uh, it's, it's, it's yeah, it is a different, um, yeah. but it has that accreditation with it. So I guess cost to implement and standards to implement does that have more of a benefit? Well, which one you know? You know, ours is less recognized. I, I just worked with a school down in yeah. Mexico that just mm -hmm. went through that, so the I understand. Process. Yeah, so I was just, that's kind of why that posed the that IB process is pretty pricey, but it is internationally recognized. Um, our accreditation is just for STEM education and best practices in STEM. Um, you know, IB is more of an overall quality assurance accreditation in terms of, you know, will this curriculum in, in school be recognized on an inter international level? What would your proponents be saying about why STEM wouldn't be the answer or they should think about something different? Um, you know, some people would say that, you know, because we didn't add the A into it for STEAM and the arts are, are missing, you know, um, you know, then clearly uh, 
STEM is incomplete. And what I would say to them is ultimately, you know, we incorporate arts as frequently as much as possible as we can in STEM. Um, but, you know, we don't necessarily need to add a bunch of different letters into the acronym in order to be able to address those concerns. Because there's a million variations of the acronym. There's STREAM, there's, you know, STEM with two M, STEM squared kind of thing. But isn't and, wasn't part of the STEM movement, too, to balance out, uh, you know, being so heavily focused in arts or literature, things like that, where you know, people are getting uh, their English majors in college and moving away from uh, STEM degrees? Wasn't that part of part of it to kind of counterbalance that sure you know most definitely is is you know where's the demand you know where where is the job demand and, and right. it, it is and you know clearly it's in stem and it looks like it's going to be that way for you know quite some time um so i guess rounding up here give us some closing arguments on the goals for the future of stem for you guys here and then i guess aside from going to jordan and losing 15 pounds this summer right. <laughs> what else you got going on in the future here and uh, what, what what do you want our listeners to know about well you know i I really want, uh, you know, education just in general to be more accessible to all. And, you know, whether we're using technology, MOOCs, massive open online courses, or, um, you know, literally going to the parts of the city that people don't want to go to, the, the east side of the Detroit, and, and having our trainers go there and help the teachers out. Um, I think that, you know, that is where the, the real change is, is, is made. Um, it's really, really easy to make policy decisions. It's easy to be in the ivory tower and say, hey, you know, I'm making a difference in STEM. Um, but who is actually going out there and, and getting their hands dirty and doing it? And so, you know, we don't, we're not shying down from going to places in northern Africa and other places where, hey, you know, these people need all the help that they possibly can get in order to understand STEM better. And so, you know, the future goals of STEM is just to, you know, reach more um, students and, and teachers alike. I had a real simple number when I started, and, and it was in the, my mind. I said, you know, I just want to work with more students each year. I looked at that as it being a very simple goal. That's good. And if I was growing on an annual basis, I knew that we were doing something correct. Um, and we can reach more students now by working with the teachers and, the, and those who work with the students. And so we can work on kind of an exponential sort of basis that way. So um, that's kind of why our model has shifted. And it was a little bit difficult. And we still do work directly with students, um, but not in the same capacity um, that we once did. Is, is English the primary or are you bilingual in, in numerous languages that this can be So done? So yes. Um, you know, we, uh, STEM.org, assisted with the first state-compliant modern Arabic language program here in Michigan to make uh, Arabic language uh, an accepted uh, credit-bearing uh, language towards graduation. Wow. Um, and we can do that, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, we're going to the Middle East. We have, you know, very, um, you know, intelligent and, and highly proficient uh, multilingual trainers that can go out and, and teach them in different languages. Excellent. Man, you kept us busy today. Impressive. Got a lot of good stuff. A lot of good stuff. Well, thanks for coming down, man. I appreciate it. And um, good luck there in the summertime. Keep us keep yeah. us informed. It definitely, let's do a recap in a couple months. Actually, probably the beginning of the school year. I'd love to have you back in and back on and, and kind of recap and tell us how things went on over there. And as far as how that first year in Jamaica is going along, too, I think our listeners would be interested in hearing about that as well. Very cool. Well, thanks for having me today. I really appreciate that. Cool. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Remember, you can post comments or want to be on the show. Head on over to tmprod.com and hit the podcast section. All content on this show is copyright by Trademark Productions or their respective owners.